we tell stories that engage, inspire, and have a lasting impact? How do we turn thoughts and ideas into effective and authentic storytelling? How can we use stories to make a difference in our work, lives, and communities? I'm your host, Camille DePutter, and together we'll explore what it means to tell stories with heart. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of the Storytelling with Heart podcast. I am your host, Camille DePutter, and with me today is Karin Norden. Karin is a PhD expert in behavior change and mindset theory. After graduating with her doctorate, Karin had a striking realization. The typical self-help and productivity approaches of the personal development industry were shockingly inconsistent with the actual research on change. That inconsistency became the fuel for her business, Body Brain Alliance, where she's on a mission to teach compassion-first change techniques that actually work. Body Brain Alliance provides programs for people who want to make changes in their lives and for coaches who want to help people change. Karin and I have worked previously together on a number of projects, including course and curriculum development at Precision Nutrition, and I've learned a lot from her about what it takes to change our behavior and also what growth mindset really means. So there's lots of juicy topics we can get into today. Welcome, Karin. Hello, I'm very excited to be here chatting today. Awesome. Well, I thought maybe a good place to begin would be a bit of your own journey. I think at one point in time, you sort of described yourself as a maybe a recovering self-help junkie. And can you tell me a bit about your own journey in this space of personal development and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so typically when I tell the story, I always start with this like pivotal event that happened in the third grade where I was sitting in class. I remember it vividly. I look over at this girl. Her name's Valerie Carlson. Someday she's going to hear this story. Um, but Valerie Carlson's sitting there and the teacher has asked us to like take out our homework and something to write with. And so Valerie pulls out of her backpack this like purple pencil case and all of her pencils are lined up and they're like in rainbow order. And she has her single sparkly folder that she opens up and her homework is right there. She just whips it out. And I look at my backpack and it's like pencil shavings and like bits of old erasers. And like, I have no idea where my homework is, if I even did it. And I remember in that moment being like, no, like I'm going to be Valerie Carlson. And I would like <laughs> take my pencil case out and like reorganize my pencil case again and then have this unrealistic expectation that like that magical, I was just going to decide to be mm -hmm. Valerie Carlson and then everything was going to change. Mm -hmm. And I think that is sort of the basis for the rest of my childhood, even into like teenage and college years. It was always me seeing a different version of myself as better, seeing myself as inadequate thinking that I needed to try harder or be more disciplined or like be harder on myself in order to get there and going through book after book, resource after resource, course after course, like just over learning 
in an attempt to get this like perfect life streak where I just do every habit I've ever wanted to every single day without fail until I die. Um, And it wasn't until I landed in a PhD that was about behavior change, which the reason I landed there was actually because I wanted to study bystander behavior for domestic violence. But I landed Um, there and I started learning and I was like, wait a second, I can apply this to my life. And not only can I, but when I do, it works better than anything I've read in the thousands, not thousands, but in the hundreds of books mm -hmm. that I've been you know, binging on for the last six years. And that was when things really started to click for me. Right. Wow. I'm maybe I'm jumping ahead in the journey, but just what pops into my head with that is aside from all of the change techniques that you learned and that we're going to get into today, because Mm -hmm. I think there's so much there that we can explore, uh, particularly, uh, you know, applying this to things like writing and communications and also maybe helping your team change as well as yourself and and growing as a, a person and a leader and so on. But I just have to ask, you know, did you ever come to a point where you felt like whether or not I change these things, whether or not I'm able to, I don't know, make my bed in the morning and go to the gym every day. Did you ever get to that feeling where you felt like I don't have to be Valerie Carlson or whoever else anymore. I'm okay. Just being me. Yes. Yes, I absolutely did. And I think I got there specifically during my PhD because I started to realize that if there was this much research about these concepts, it meant that I wasn't alone. And it may meant that, you know, maybe the things that I was struggling with weren't deficiencies. They were just like fundamental parts of being human. And I think that's like Mm -hmm. the interesting part of what we do with clients is a lot of their quote issues, we're never going to fix. But if we can name and normalize them, like it's, it's really the naming, like giving something a name is powerful. And when you know, like, for example, this month, I taught a lot about struggling on whether or not you should continue pursuing a goal. Mm -hmm. That is called an action crisis. And when you can say, I'm having an action crisis rather than I'm a waffler. Your relationship with with change and with yourself is going to fundamentally go in a better direction because you are realizing that you're a human and you're allowed to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's such a great point too because wrapped up in any kind of change, any kind of self-improvement growth as well, we have to contend with these self-stories, right? The, the things that we believe about ourselves and maybe old stories that have been around for a long time of like, oh, I'm I'm a quitter. I quit everything. So, oh no, I'm doing it again. <laughs> I'm quitting again. And it's like that old narrative I had um, executive coach Donna Lishow on on a previous episode, and she talked about that a lot as well, that, you know, for a lot of these very senior executives that she works with, they have these ideas. Often they've been told to them by other people on their team or through, you know, peer reviews or so on saying, oh, well, this is your problem. You need to fix this. And then when they get to the root of it, though, that story of, oh, I'm I'm bad at this thing or, you know, it's this weakness that is my undoing. It isn't actually necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100 percent. And, you know, we have those stories based on like what we hear in the media and based on expectations of what we think things should be. And that's like, 
work that we're that I'm constantly even doing all the time. I feel like every third day I'm like, oh wow, do I really believe this about myself? My partner has the very annoying habit of just revealing these truths to me in the middle of like casual Tuesday dinner. He he'll be like, oh well, you're you're having kind of a fixed fixed mindset about this. And I'm like, whoa, you're really just gonna drop that on me right now. But I, it it it's an ongoing journey and it's always going to be something where you like you're gonna surface a new belief and then you're gonna work through it. And then something else is going to come up and you're gonna work through it and and that's okay. Right. Yeah. So with that set, you know, having said that, recognizing that, hey, this is an ongoing process, that there's probably a lot of stories that we carry about ourselves that we're going to have to unpack and that hopefully we can approach any kind of change we want to do in our lives, whether that's changing habits or or growing or getting better, you know, in some way, if we can have some, um, you know, some self-kindness or compassion around that, mm-hmm. how how can, or at least what are some of the ways that we can approach doing a thing that we don't think we're very good at, that we don't necessarily particularly like? And so I think about this because I obsess over people who are in leadership positions and what that means for their communications and their storytelling. And I think for a lot of them, part of the the job or the expectation or the desire is to build thought leadership. It's to write more or publish more, or maybe it's simply to be more inspirational or persuasive with their team and their staff, their stakeholders, but they maybe think or know, hey, communications aren't my best skill. I'm talking, but people aren't getting it, or I hate writing, or it's just such an agonizing process, or I I just <laughs> suck at this. And so it's like, okay, it's, it's here. It's part of the job or part of the thing I want to do, but I'm not, not great at it. And so it's hard to do. Where, where can they start? Yeah. So oftentimes what I encourage people to start with when we come with self-perceptions is a base level neutrality about that self-perception. So a lot of people are like, oh, I'm really bad at writing, but I know I shouldn't think that about myself. Like they're they're immersed enough in the like self-help world to be like, oh, but I have to think positive, but I have to be a growth mindset or they're judging their, themselves. They're like, I'm bad at writing. I should be better by now. Mm-hmm. And so one of the first most powerful things that you can do is to say, this is supposed to be exactly how it is. Like I am, it's, I am, I'm supposed to struggle with this right now. Mm -hmm. I am supposed to be bad at this right now. This Mm -hmm. is the right stage of my life. And that was very relevant for me early on when I was starting to lead a team because I'm 29 years old. I had been in a PhD and before that in a master's degree and before that in undergrad. So like my experience as a CEO is the first time I've ever led a team. And there have been multiple moments where I've had to remind myself like what I'm struggling with right now is exactly what I'm supposed to be struggling with right now. I'm not supposed to be farther along. I'm not supposed to be better at this. I'm supposed to be where I am. Um, So that's kind of like the base level. Just and you saying second, that, by the way, I, I, I'm like, immediately, it just relaxes me with whatever else I feel I'm struggling with. I'm like, ah, oh, this is like a soothing balm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And from there, from that neutrality, like neutrality comes before curiosity, right? We can't try to get to curiosity from a foundation of judgment. And so when we're moving towards curiosity, then it becomes like, okay, 
I'm really struggling to do copywriting. Like it just is really hard for me. I'm supposed to be where it is. How can I, what could I experiment with that might make copywriting feel easier, that might make copywriting feel more intuitive? And it's not about like, how do I get from A to Z? How do I get from this level of skill to the next one? It's like, what are all of my options for paths I could take? Because oftentimes it's not like, oh, if you follow this exact formula, you're going to get to the next level of skill. You're going to have to try a bunch of different things. And those tools are going to grow with you. So when I learned to write Instagram posts, the tools that I first used to start getting better at that, those are still the tools I fall back on even now as I'm much more proficient at it. So it's really about number one, neutrality. And then number two, curiosity, like what could my next approach be? And when you say tools, by the way, so do you mean, you know, experimenting with all different kinds of approaches like, okay, well, maybe I'm going to try writing in the morning because I think that's a time when I'm most creative, or maybe I'll try doing this work in a group or with other people. So there's some accountability there. Like not when you say tool, not necessarily meaning like a a kind of a physical tool, the equivalent of of a hammer, but like a, a way to help yourself do the thing or get better at the thing. Yes. Approach is probably a better word. Like you don't need to buy another planner. You don't need to like download somebody's five step system. Just like try different things out. And if you're unsure what to try, look to areas where you have succeeded or grown in the past. And you can ask yourself, how can I take my approach that works over here? And how can I like learn from that and start applying those concepts over here? So for example, like let's say you played college sports. And you got a lot better at basketball while you were in college. What kind of environment was helping you get better? What kind of thoughts were you thinking when you weren't doing well in a game? Like, what did you do to work through those thoughts? What kind of approaches did your coach have you take? You can learn so much from a domain you've kind of already grown in. And sometimes people don't think of that because we're so used to like segmenting different areas of our lives. But the truth is that there are parts of learning that are fairly universal across all domains. Right. Awesome. That's a great clarification. Great and great suggestion. Okay. So what comes next? So you've done the neutrality. Now you've done the sort of curiosity and experimentation. What comes after that? And so then it's, I I think there's two things. Um, Number one, we know that people improve skills the fastest when they do something called deep practice. And to give you an example, um, this is from the book. Oh, I'll, I'll, you'll have to link the book in the show notes because I'll have to get you the name later. Sure. Um, but it it is a book written by a sports psychology expert. And one of the like case studies he talks about is how a huge percentage of the soccer players that are elite in the world come from a specific little town. And this specific little town, what they do differently is they play soccer as kids in the alley with a much smaller, harder soccer ball. And so essentially what they're doing is they're practicing in a concentrated state And they're getting more feedback because they're playing in this concentrated state more often. And so those are the two components of deep practice, which is how you get better at something quickly. You need 
a concentrated version of what whatever you're doing and you need feedback. So for example, entrepreneurship is this kind of pressure container naturally, right? Because you're doing hard things all the time. But let's say that you want to get better at your public speaking skills. Mm -hmm. That might involve putting yourself in a situation like Toastmasters, where you're practicing that on a regular basis, doing a challenge where you're, you know, releasing a reel every single day on Instagram and kind of forcing yourself to go through that process. And then also, if you can, pairing that with feedback. And that can come through a coach or an expert or a, you know, a team member who's even giving you feedback. You want something that is allowing you to reflect on the skill you're learning. And if you combine those two, this deep practice and the feedback, that's when we start evolving really quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I, I probably especially like it because it aligns with something that I really encourage people to do. And so, you know, when it comes to their writing, um, people who want to be thought leaders, they want to be known for what they want to be known for. And, you know, they want to advance their their reputation and brand and, and these kinds of things. And I'm, I'm still to this day, a big fan of email newsletters. It's certainly not the only way, but it's, it's a great way to communicate. And one of the things that I like about it is that if you can commit to some kind of a regular publish, publishing schedule, then it allows you to write something regularly, which is, I think, an idea a lot of people take on board with writing, maybe even too much, where it's sort of this idea of you've got to write every day or write regularly. But it gets you to write regularly to practice writing. But it also then means you're putting something out into the world. So you're you're likely to get some type of feedback, at least through data, seeing if people are opening it and that kind of thing. And hopefully even through their responses to you. And you can ask people for feedback as well. You can ask your community what they think and get reactions. Um, Because I, I see a real tendency to want to kind of do the opposite. Like I'll start writing once I've sort of written a bunch myself and feel comfortable, or I'll start doing the regular publishing after I've done the big thing, the big book or the big speech, but then they, they don't really get that practice up until then. Yes. And that happens, I think, in all different areas of behavior change. We tell ourselves, I will feel a certain way. In particular, the ones I feel are like, I will feel confident or I will feel certain when, or I will be able to identify a certain way when. So when I run a half marathon, then I will feel like a runner. Mm -hmm. Then I can identify as a runner. When in reality, in order to get to the half marathon, you actually start have to start identifying as a runner in order Mm -hmm. to make the behavior changes you need to get there. And so it's almost like taking the approach and flipping it. And you can ask yourself, what is going to make me create confidence now? And confidence is created through practice, tiny, tiny, tiny bits of practice over and over again. And that's what's going to get you to your goal. So it's really about how do I facilitate the feeling or the identity that I'm aiming for on a daily basis? That's going to get me to the result. The result is not going to facilitate that feeling. Right. And this leads into something that I, I really wanted you wanted to ask you about, which is also then this notion of of consistency, which is 
I know is a bit of a, a trigger word for you. And, and so I, I bring it up deliberately. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. But so when I talk about writing then, um, or, you know, the same examples of, say, of, of running, it's like, well, then we need, if we need this deep practice, we need to get out there and do it. So we need to be participating in the practice with some kind of regularity. And so, but I know this is a, this is often where then things start to fall apart because for a lot of folks, if they're saying, okay, well, I want to write every day or run every day or whatever that thing is, take five minutes and have a little stand-up meeting with my team every day, or I want to do a check-in with my staff, you know, a five-minute email or check-in on every Friday or whatever. And then it's so hard to maintain those things. How do we create some kind of regularity with that habit or practice that we're trying to build that we can maintain? Or do we even need to? Is this idea of keeping it up or have it, making it be regular or consistent kind of a, a falsehood? What do you think? Yeah. So I think there's there's two answers to your question. So number one, it's important to clarify, do I actually need to be consistent with this thing or not? Or does it benefit me every time I do it, regardless of if I do it consistently or not? So that's what people don't recognize, Mm -hmm. right? Is like every time you do 10 minutes of yoga, you are benefiting from doing 10 minutes of yoga. And so what I want people to do is separate the idea that results only come from consistency. Results come from action. Yes, those results start to amplify once you do them more often, but it is the action that creates the result. And too many people have been told that it's the consistency Mm -hmm. that creates the result. And so that's an important distinction. And then the other thing is that what I see people do is they jump from, I'm not doing this behavior at all, to I want to do this behavior on a regular basis, effortlessly. (laughs) And it's like, well, my friend, think about a toddler. Like, a baby cannot walk. A toddler walks consistently. What happens in the middle? You have a baby who sporadically gets up and walks for a while. And it's like, nope, I'd rather crawl. And then walks for a whole day. And there's like, nope. And so that progress doesn't look, it's not like your toddler's like, oh, on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I'll be walking. Like, that's not that's not how that happens. And so in the middle of not doing something and doing it consistently is this crucial step that people forget to miss and people forget to celebrate, which is increasing frequency. So I tell my clients, why don't we cut the drama about the fact that you're not doing this on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday every week and celebrate the fact that if you went for a run one time last month and you went for a run two times this month, you have doubled your success rate. Mm-hmm. Why are we not reckoning? Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think it it is it's true that that there is a big gap there that we we do. We want to we want to jump into being the the person who does the thing and does it all the time. And also you had mentioned in there doing it well. Like, is that part of this baked in expectation around sort of how we do it, our expected performance? Yeah, I think 
there is a fundamental misunderstanding of what a habit is because a habit is a simple behavior that can be um, done automatically. So me putting on a pair of leggings when I get up in the morning, as soon as I get up out of bed, pulling on a pair of leggings, that could probably be a habit. Me going to the gym is a whole sequence of behaviors put together that's going to change based on my circumstances every single day. And so people have this expectation because that they've been told a habit is automatic, a habit you don't have to think about. And they're like, oh, why can't I just go to the gym without thinking about it? Like, why is it hard for me? And I think it's a gap between the expectation that we tell people of how easy things are going to be, how automatic things are going to be, when in reality, what they're asking for is a complex behavior that they're always going to have to manage their mind around. And as soon as you stop judging yourself for that, you can actually take on that as a challenge instead of just being mad that it's not easy yet. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. It's true. I I, I can see that in myself as well as others when we think, okay, I just want to do this thing. And you even something like going for you know, going for a run, say, it's like, well, wait, there's so many different kinds of processes or skills that might go into that in the first place, like learning how to do your warm up or finding your route or <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's where people start to get really frustrated with the change process because they have kind of been told by society that after 22 days or whatever, mm-hmm. it should be magically easy for them to eat three meals a day with vegetables. When in reality, it's like, oh, you just you just asked yourself to initiate 26 new behaviors across a variety of different circumstances without giving yourself any support other than your like, quote, willpower, and you want it to be done in 22 days. Like, your expectations are unrealistic. It's not that you're falling short. It's not that anything's wrong with you. It's not that something's broken with your brain. It's that our societal dialogue about how change happens is like in the clouds level of unrealistic. And someone, that person being me, like Mm -hmm. my expectation or like my job is to just say, hey, it's not going to be that easy. And there's nothing wrong with you if it isn't. Right. Yeah. And that hopefully if we're able to adjust those expectations a little bit, then it sounds like the idea is it gives us a little bit more breathing room to engage with the process in the first place. I mean, this is something I would love people to understand about writing and communicating in general that, you know, it it can be easier. It certainly can get easier. It can get way easier, but there's it's still always going to be at least a little bit of a struggle. And the struggle is part of it. It's part of the point. It's part of the practice. And in fact, if we take the struggle out of it, if you don't wrestle a little bit with figuring out what you're trying to say, what works best with your audience, what feels right to you and works well with your audience, And going through that process of getting the ideas out of your head and out into the world in a way that they land with other people and that you're able to connect. I mean, this is a 
this is always going to be different and it's always going to be a little bit of a messy process. And sometimes it will feel easy and it will spark and it will feel great. And other times it's going to be like, oh, that didn't land or I felt awkward or I don't think people got it or, you know, felt a little bit flat. But I, I would love for people to be able to just engage with that process and see it as an opportunity for growth and learning and expression and, and fun, as well as all the results that can potentially come out of it, the more that you practice and get better at it. Yeah. And what's really interesting about some of the neuroscience behind that is that people talk about dopamine as a reward chemical, but really dopamine is a chase chemical. It is about chasing something and then getting the reward. We have higher levels of dopamine when we work towards something, when we're like, that actually plays a role in dopamine as well. And so I think people forget about the fact that if it's not somewhat challenging for you, exactly what you said, if you lose that hard, then you also lose that sense of, of gratification with it because that's, the the difficulty of it is what creates the gratification. You can't have one without the other. And so I tell clients all the time, they're like, I'm so frustrated. And I'm like, that's awesome. Because that means that this is something you care about. And that means that this is something that's benefiting you. And that means that this is something that is contributing positively to your life, even if you're frustrated in this moment. Yeah, that's fascinating. And it sounds like uh, there's also kind of a message in there that's like, great, because if you struggles now, if you're struggling with it now, you're going to feel really at least some moments of, you know, they might be fleeting, <laughs> dopamine doesn't stick around that long, but it, you're going to have those moments then of satisfaction and of like that great hit that you get when you've struggled for something with, you know, and, and then achieved it where you're like, yes, like <laughs> I think about going out for a run and, you know, runs in particular where I'm like, why is this still so hard? But then it probably wouldn't be as satisfying if it wasn't hard. Yeah. Well, and think about like, if you've ever watched Big Brother or Survivor, like imagine if those challenges that they gave them were easy. Imagine if their challenges were like, lick a hundred envelopes. It's like, that's not nearly as satisfying to experience or to watch than to them, if you've ever seen it, they do these like crazy puzzles and they're balancing and the balls are just like falling off and they get so close to the end. And then there's like this last moment where the guy gets it just in the right place and you can see him like jump back and throw his hands up in the air, right? And he just experienced so much joy after 10 minutes of like fighting with a bouncy ball. And I think that's something that's kind of incredible about humanness is that you can fight with a bouncy ball for 10 minutes and and generate like the same kind of joy that you would feel if you ran a marathon or like did some kind of other crazy achievement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is amazing. And this, uh, this is a question I had wanted to ask you anyway, but I think it's maybe a good segue is that a number of my clients have ADHD. My husband has ADHD. I know you're vocal about it as well. So if your brain doesn't give you that, <laughs> natural dopamine hit then and you have your you know your kind of your own set of of challenges and navigating this stuff what can you say to speak to that experience and what um what behavior change means to a person with ADHD yeah so i'm going to start by saying i'm not an expert on ADHD i'm just a person who understands behavior change and a person who has ADHD 
And the thing that I really struggle with is that I think there's this dialogue right now that I've heard that like ADHD people can't. ADHD people can't change. ADHD people can't form habits. ADHD people can't manage their time. ADHD people, you know, they they can't show up on time. And I think we're kind of in this area, this like moment where for some people that feels really empowering and it feels really freeing because they've been struggling with those things their their whole life. And so for someone to tell them ADHD people aren't capable of forming habits, they're like, that matches my experience and it feels validating. Mm -hmm. But my frustration with that is that number one, the majority of the stuff that I've seen about ADHD out there is not actually based in any kind of research because there's a lot we don't know about ADHD period. And number two, the whole point of neurodivergence is that all of our brains work differently. So my experience with ADHD is going to be drastically different than someone else's experience Mm -hmm. with ADHD, et cetera, et cetera. And so for our clients who have ADHD, for the people in our program, what I tell them is that number one, acceptance is the most important. Like if it's empowering to you, you can say to yourself, like, I am starting so far back compared to most people. It might take me longer to learn this skill. It might be more difficult for me to learn this skill. But at least my experience has been when I do nail it, when I do get even 1% better, the impact that has on my life is tenfold because it is helping me do something that I couldn't do before or that I never believed I could. So I struggle with time management my entire life. And People would tell me now, like, oh, Karin, that was because you had ADHD. And I like went for a long time. I didn't know I had it. I was unmedicated. And so I just was in figure it out mode. And now it's like, I'm so grateful for that journey. And I'm so grateful that I didn't know. I'm so grateful I thought I could get better at time management. And I, because I did, like, I did and I could. And I figured out things that worked for me. And so with all change for everybody, it's about finding out what works for you figuring out not what is true, but what is helpful for you and realizing that if you're pursuing something, you can have acceptance and desire at the same time. You can hold the understanding that like, this is difficult for me and maybe it will never be easy. And you can still have the desire to change and improve that. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. So I guess what I'm, what I'm hearing is that in you know, in your experience and, and from your point of view, the most important things that you can bring into your own process of of change and getting better at things at growth is to have acceptance. And again, going back to that kind of neutrality that you presented originally around how you whatever your approach is and where you are at. And also that it's going to be about, as it is for anyone, figuring out what works for you, as opposed to thinking that you need to do it specifically by the book or, you know, what you've heard or what might work for somebody else. Is that right? Am I missing anything there? No, I I think that's great. And I think that what's interesting about neurodiversity too, is that if your brain works differently, yes, it means that you have quote weaknesses because of the way society is set up, not because of anything that's wrong with you. 
So the reason why you struggle with test taking is because the world was not built for people with ADHD to take tests. And so everywhere that you have, quote, weaknesses, you also have strengths. There are also things that you can do that a neurotypical person can't do. I don't think that Body Brain Alliance would have grown as quickly as it did had I not been unmedicated ADHD. Like, (laughs) I just don't think because I have all these ideas and I can sit down and do something for 11 hours straight if I'm really interested in it. And and neurotypical people can't do that. Mm -hmm. So I think it's as much about accepting the areas where you're struggling and where things aren't easy for you, but also getting curious about how can you leverage the, the strengths that you do have. Right. Yeah. That's a great couple of points, including that the, just the recognition that a lot of the things you may be struggling with is simply the way that society is set up because it, you're right. Just to reaffirm that it isn't set up for neurodivergence. It's set up for a certain type of brain. It works a certain type of way. And it may, may not even work all that well in a lot of ways for quote unquote, you know, neurotypical uh, folks as well. So um, but then we still have all these things that we want to do and we have all these goals that we have for ourselves. So, you know, it's also kind of how do we find a way of, of getting there and achieving those things, but also being able to treat ourselves well at the same time and not just be beating ourselves up the whole way. Yeah. A hundred percent. Can you tell me a bit about, um, growth mindset? I know that was a big part of your research and, and your expertise as well. And, you know, maybe you can comment on like when when Carol Dweck wrote Growth Mindset and it exploded and became one of these really zeitgeist changing books and ideas. Now it's kind of settled into this general lexicon. And I mean, I almost think about it a bit the way you alluded to earlier, where it's almost uh translated to like, oh, I should have a growth mindset about this. <laughs> like yes. it's almost it feels like another thing I'm doing wrong if I'm not having more of a growth mindset, if I'm not able to be like just chill with getting critical feedback. Um I don't know. Can you maybe a good place to 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 enter the conversation on growth mindset is to perhaps clear up some misunderstandings about what it is. Yes. Yes. So let's first talk about definition. So the definition I hear is like develop a growth mindset, which translates to like, believe you can do it. And that's not what a growth mindset is. A growth mindset is a belief that a specific thing about you, a quality, a trait, a skill can be grown, improved, or changed with time and effort. Okay. That's really important. The second piece that drives me bonkers (laughs) is that people say adopt a growth mindset as if you can like go to your local grocery store and be like, oh, I'm just going to change today. I'm just going to fundamentally think about things in a completely different way today. And that is not even close to what is, is happening. And what research shows us, and this is something that I'm very close to because For my dissertation, I actually created and built a growth mindset intervention that changed people's perceptions of their own communication skills. That was my dissertation. And if 
you design a very strategic intervention. You give people certain messaging around growth mindset. You ask them to reflect on times in the past where they have improved and changed this particular thing. There's a variety of things you can do. If you do that, you can nudge people a little bit, like 0.5% more towards a growth mindset. And the effect sizes for these, these studies, even like mine and even like some of the best ones, are pretty small. That's actually one of the big debates about growth mindset is like, are these effect sizes strong enough that this this thing should have the impact on society that it does have? Um, and I believe that that you can nudge yourself towards a growth mindset. And I believe that you that's possible, but it takes way more time way more experience with that thing. Like it, it just takes a lot more effort than waking up on a Tuesday and deciding that you're going to think differently about something. <laughs> and so when you're talking about effect sizes, you are, do you mean like the, the um, amount that people were able to, to change and like the level of, of impact that that would actually create in their lives? Like, could you give me an example of how like how, how, what would that look like in terms of someone moving the, the needle on their communication skills? Yeah. So this is like a super quick science for you, but in research studies, when you do quantitative analysis, you get something called a p-value, which tells you whether or not the results of your study could be completely up to chance. And you have like a certain p-value you have to establish in order for something to be statistically significant. So when people say, oh, this study found that the participants significantly increased their growth mindset, that doesn't actually mean it increased a lot. It means it was statistically Mm -hmm. significant, okay? The effect size is a numerical sort of judgment on how much that impact, like on how that impact would look if it was in the real world. So a lot of people um, have a lot of studies are statistically significant, but the effect sizes are really small, meaning like they wouldn't actually make a huge difference in people's lives. And so that's what we see with a lot of psychological research, even beyond growth mindset, is we see pretty small effect sizes, which means that it would either take like multiple versions of this intervention um, to have it make an impact or like it may not make quite the impact that we we want it to. Um, right. However, I will say with growth mindset, there are very specific studies, specifically the work of um, like Jaeger at all. If you look Jaeger at all, I think it's 2008. Um Anyway, all of like Jaeger's work is about growth mindset interventions. And what their like entire research team does is they look at growth mindset interventions that are given to students in school and they're given a growth mindset about their ability to grow their intelligence. And it does have both significant and fairly large impacts on their grades, their perseverance, different things like that. So there are real life applications of growth mindset. It's just some of it is we think that switching to a growth mindset is going to immediately have this major effect. And that's maybe not as realistic. 
Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, I take your point that the you're not trying to suggest that this is not possible. And the fact that you did your your dissertation on this, you know, particularly with communication skills is extra interesting. So if people are going, oh, well, you know, I I'm feeling like I can't do this thing or I'm not good at this thing. Am I going to feel better about that or am I going to be able to change my mindset about it? You know, clearly that's that is possible. But the point is that we have this almost sort of common vernacular around the thing that is adopt a growth mindset, that it's as though it's simple, as though it's easy, and as though almost too that it's all or nothing. Like, well, you've got, you know, this fixed mindset over here, go get a growth mindset and then you'll be better. Yes. Yeah. And I think the other thing I want to emphasize is that it's often more useful to think about your growth or fixed mindset towards a specific thing. So it's like, okay, do you believe that you can improve your communication skills? I don't know. Yes or no. Maybe. Maybe you're somewhere in the middle. Do you believe you can improve your skills at creating an attention getter for a speech? All of a sudden, when you shrink it down, you actually start transferring over to another concept called self-efficacy, which is your ability that you can that you are capable of doing something in a specific circumstance. And if you focus on increasing your self-efficacy, that's very related to growth mindset. And those affirmations, like when, you, when you're able to do that tiny thing, you get that reward, you get that sense of confidence, and then you're actually showing yourself that this particular thing can change. And that action, that behavior, witnessing that actual shift is going to do a lot more for your mindset than like thinking about it or like looking at yourself in the bathroom and being like, I can grow. Like that's not, that's not going to be as helpful. Yeah. Going back to the discussion earlier about regular practice too. I mean, it, it strikes me that say, you know, that, that person who's struggling with public speaking or afraid of public speaking and they're not sure how that they'd be able to tolerate critical feedback. And so it seems to me partly what you're saying is if you're able to say, okay, well, maybe I can just get, you know, a little bit better at even taking the feedback after a speech and feeling maybe not awesome, but like not maybe a little, a little step beyond totally falling apart afterwards, mm-hmm. then, you know, that I can, maybe I can get better at that a little bit. And if I continue to practice, if I keep doing a little bit more public speaking, a little bit more, then maybe I'll be able to get better at taking whatever kinds of feedback. And then maybe that will allow me to in turn become a better and more confident public speaker. Could that be sort of an example of how this might work together? Yeah, 100%. And the interesting thing about my research in particular is that when you increased communication mindset, when you adopted, not adopted, when you grew more of a of a growth mindset towards communication, your public speaking anxiety actually reduced. And so that is another way it sort of fa- facilitates that change because it's not as anxiety inducing to do something if you believe that it's not going to be that hard forever. But if you believe 
that it's going to be that hard forever and you're never going to get better at it, then your anxiety is going to be sky high because it's essentially like, oh, this is, I have to look forward to this sucking the rest of my life. (laughs) Yeah. And these things are, you know, some of the nuances around this are a bit, a bit tricky to, to unpack and kind of wrap our heads around. I mean, to me, what, what I take away from it when I think about this is like, just keep trying to do the thing, just keep doing the the things and trying to be as kind as I can to myself in the process, because we know that that sort of practice tends to add up and will is likely to build more confidence and comfort. So I can't just sit at home and be like, oh, I should have more of a growth mindset. <laughs> but it the more we're willing to engage in this whole process of of change and doing the thing and experimenting and so on, the the better we not just get at the thing, but like kind of handling the whole messy process. Do, would, do you agree with that? Do you have anything to add to that? A hundred percent. And I tell our clients at the beginning of our program, like all of you are here because you view yourself as a caterpillar and you want to be a butterfly. But biologically, before a caterpillar becomes a butterfly, it becomes a pile of goo. It disintegrates. It eats itself. That's how that process works. And so like, there is going to be part of the process of growth where you're in the pile of goo. And the more that you're willing to be the pile of goo and just embrace that and be like, yeah, this is shitty right now. This really sucks right now. I'm really having a hard time. I'm really frustrated. Like, can you support yourself through that? Can you acknowledge again, like we started with, this is where I'm supposed to be normalizing that, accepting that that is going to make the process so much more bearable. Um, And I I tell people all the time too, is that you will spend 99% of your time pursuing improvement and 1% experiencing it. If you've ever accomplished something, you know that like, oh, it's great. You pop the champagne, you eat a steak dinner, you wake up the next morning, you you have your eye on something else. (laughs) And so if you don't learn to accept the 99%, if you're constantly chasing like if you want to live in that 1% where you, you've achieved every goal, A, that's actually boring to live there. Um, not not super helpful. But B, like we have to embrace that 99% and understanding that you're going to be there and you're supposed to be there the majority of the time. That is, in my personal opinion, the key to a, a fulfilling life. That's amazing. See, this is why one of the reasons why you're such a joy to talk to because you you yourself are such a great communicator and we can we've had many conversations as well in previous uh interviews and in curriculum work and so on to really get into the nitty-gritty of research and scientific concepts. <laughs> you're able to just come back and be like, "Yeah, here's a great metaphor about the butterfly eating itself that I will remember and be able to apply the the steak dinner and champagne." Like, uh, I really get it. So, thank you for for breaking it down <laughs> into the yeah. stuff that we could really understand and relate to. Well, and and no problem. And I just want to say this because it very much relates to the conversation we're having, which is that I in college was on a a public speaking team a nationally ranked public speaking team. This is like, I was the D1 athlete of public speaking. I was in practice up in front of a room, speaking in front of people for eight hours every week, probably another four to five hours. I'm revising my speeches. I'm practicing on my own. I'm running things in the bathroom. Like the 
the level of training I have around public speaking is exactly everything we're talking about. And when I started my freshman year of college, I was worst at it. I was the worst one on my team. And my senior year, I won a national championship. And the only thing that came between A and B was practice. And so I just wanted to mention that because mm-hmm. people tell me that all the time. They're like, you're such a good teacher. You're such good at public speaking. And I'm like, yes, because I practiced for eight hours a day for, for like eight hours a week for four years. That's why. And so mm-hmm. it is really all about like putting in the reps. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And also notably, you were on a team. You uh, Did you have a coach? I had two coaches. I had feedback from my peers. I mm-hmm. had that exact deep focus loop mm-hmm. that we talked yeah. about. Yeah. I, I really appreciate you you pointing that out because it it often is the case as well behind anyone that we look at and think is great at something that there's all this other stuff happening behind the scenes. And it shows what can be produced and what you can gain if you should choose and you you don't have to, but if you should should so choose to really pursue that and put in that practice, that that is what's possible on on the other side. I think we especially live in now a very kind of bright and shiny world of, you know, all of the stuff on social media, all of the content, everyone kind of saying, hey, you know, look at me and look how, how pretty and how perfect I am. And what we don't see is that the messy process in between all the times that you're out there shaking in your boots because you're 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 practicing and you're early in it and you're you're in that the, the, you're the caterpillar eating itself in between and uh so I, I think it's great to talk about that and, and share those those stories too before we wrap up um i a final question for you and this is a, this is a little bit of an, a more of a kind of an open question i'm sure you could talk about it for ages so so you could do with it what you will but we've talked a lot about helping ourselves change and what we need to know about change and growth and growth growth mindset but can you comment on you know is what should leaders keep in mind if their goal is to help other people change i had mentioned earlier like maybe you want your staff to be able to talk to each other more, communicate better. Maybe you want them to feel more inspired and level up their their work or their commitment to work, or maybe there's skills you want to help them develop or whatever it may be. Is there, what, what comments might you have for people who want to help other people to change? Yeah, I think the biggest comment I have is that they have to want that first. And so I think the biggest issue that we get into as coaches or even as leaders is like, okay, I want this team member to get better at public speaking, but do they? And if the answer is that they don't and you need someone in that role who's really efficient at public speaking, then maybe, you know, shifting roles in the organization is going to be the best option. But if that person meets you halfway and says, hey, yeah, this is something I'm really interested in then I think you can get involved with that process with them and do everything we just talked about. So you can get involved with the like, hey, what you're doing right now is great. You know, you're really valuable to the organization. Let's talk about what can we play around with in order to help you create those skills. Um, I know a lot of people say in organizations like put people in their zone of genius. And I actually really dislike that because I think that people should be in their zone of pursuit. Like 
they should be improving. I don't want all my all my people to be a genius at what they're doing. I want them to be interested in improving at what they're doing. And if I put people in places where they have that opportunity for growth, that's when I've seen my team at least really like jump in, grab onto the job with their teeth and like absolutely skyrocket. Like my team is incredible. And I think it partially is because they are given the chance to grow. Mm-hmm. And, and if you, is that because if you put people in their quote unquote zone of genius, there's just sort of some stagnation and plateauing that can happen that that what you were speaking to earlier, where if everything feels easy, it also doesn't feel that satisfying or, you know, you might actually not be doing your, your best work because we need to be challenged. Yeah, I think it has to do with that and also the expectation or like the idea that like, oh, you're supposed to be a genius at this, meaning Mm. everything in your job is supposed to be effortless for you. If you're struggling with this, like, what does that say? Then all of a sudden, is this not your zone of genius anymore? Does that mean this is not the right position for you? So I think like that's kind of tricky for me um, because I think it Mm. can be really complimentary. Like, oh, this is my zone of genius. I'm doing the things I love to do. but. Also, we don't need to be good at everything in order to be the right in the right spot. Right. Nor are we necessarily going to be. I mean, what does it mean to be good at, at a, a thing? I mean, you can be great at a thing like we talked about with writing and stuff. I'm, you know, like it, I'm great at this thing, but that doesn't mean that you're going to like everything that I write or that my I won't ever need a second draft or a third draft, whatever. There's always going to be room to improve. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. Well, this has been so fantastic, Karin. You dropped a ton of knowledge here, and it's always so fun to talk to you about these things as well and hear your your wonderful metaphors and, and your passion for all of this work. So thanks for sharing some of it with us today. Yeah, no problem. It's been really, really fun. Thanks for listening to the Storytelling with Heart podcast. Want to turn your thoughts into leadership and your ideas into words that make a difference? Find me and discover more free resources at www.camilledeputter.com. While you're there, don't forget to subscribe to my email newsletter where I share stories, free tools, and other storytelling guidance. And never forget, your story matters.